trauma itself is the adaptation and coping that we adopt as a result of adverse experiences that happen to us. Intergenerational trauma is the only type of trauma that's handed down the family line. Diabetes is very much implicated in generational chronic stress and trauma. I'm your host, Sarah Ann Macklin, and I'm on a mission to uncover the maze of health myths around nutrition and well-being and guide you through my seven pillars of health. Join me on a journey of discovery and connection and pull up a pew for a front row seat to the most exclusive health conversations of our time. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Dr. Marielle Bouquet is a trauma psychologist and the author of the new book, Break the Cycle, where she addresses how we can comprehend intergenerational trauma. I believe it's this generation that can start to break down the cycles of trauma. Yes, doing this can begin in our relationship with others, but I truly believe it starts with our relationship to ourselves. This conversation is going to enlighten you on nurturing your mind and your body. And I honestly think this could be one of the most powerful and enlightening conversations you were going to hear on this show. But firstly, I addressed with Dr. Marielle Bouquet exactly what is trauma. Marielle Bouquet, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. I am so excited to have you on the show and be talking all things that's actually, I think, is probably going to be one of the most and I don't say this lightly, but one of the most enlightening conversations that our listeners might hear on this show, because it's one, I think, of the hardest to approach. And you've done it exceptionally. Can I just say, I read your book in a day, which is, I think, unheard of for me. Well, we're going to be touching on trauma and also intergenerational trauma. Now, people might not know what that is. So before we even dive into this topic, I want to firstly start by approaching the elephant in the room on all of this. I just want you to explain to everyone, firstly, what do we mean by trauma? Oh, yes. I, that's a wonderful starting point. So trauma itself is the ongoing and usually pretty longstanding adaptation and coping that we adopt as a result of distressing and adverse experiences that happen to us. So it's the way that we, in essence, like continue to attempt to protect ourselves more subconsciously in order to prohibit uh, from the circumstances that have happened in the past from happening again. I think I learned this about trauma when I went to my first ever session. I was around 21, so it was many, many, many moons ago. Because trauma to me felt this huge extreme life event that probably didn't occur in my in my vicinity as growing up. But actually, the more I understood and went to therapy, I realized it's not just these huge traumatic events that we relate to as trauma. So I kind of want to start there because I don't want people to shut off, listen to this episode because they might not think that they've had a huge traumatic event in their life and therefore they have no trauma. So can we elaborate a bit on how trauma can affect people from small events to obviously huge, considerable larger ones as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it might be even helpful to like scatter in maybe like one statistic that we have currently in society from the World Health Organization that, and this is based on self-report, which we always have to kind of like understand that self-reporting can be underestimated. So these numbers may even be larger than this. The World Health Organization specifically noted that 
about 70% of adults will experience a traumatic incident in their lifetime, with most of those individuals experiencing anywhere from three to four incidents that they appraise as traumatic and that leaves behind remnants of emotional distress. So that's enough to at least help us understand how common this experience tends to be. And I, I like to also bring up that statistic for the sake of destigmatization, because trauma tends to be that big word that a lot of us don't want to touch, when in reality, a lot of us actually struggle with a traumatic incident that has left behind experiences of um, distress and emotion and grief and all kinds of other emotional experiences that we then have to sort through, but we typically don't want to touch it because we don't want to even acknowledge that trauma has been present in our lives. Trauma has been known to be an experience that is either acute, meaning that there was this big distressing moment in your life, most notably the types of moments that could have at least like helped made us feel as though we were likely to lose our lives a car accident, a theft at gunpoint, sometimes even emotional experiences that perhaps didn't threaten our lives, but definitely left a profound, profound um, emotional uh, weight upon us, like a really bad parental divorce, a separation, like a parental abandonment and things of that nature, like by way of incarceration, by way of immigration, you know, like all those kinds of experiences. All of that falls into the category of what we call like capital T or some call it big T trauma. There are also the types of experiences that still get appraised as traumatic, but didn't either threaten our sense of safety or leave gauging wounds, right? but still impacted us enough to have made us experience like traumatic symptoms. That or the fact that they are longstanding and chronic and the fact that we have these chronic stressors, the accumulation of them can make it so that it wears down our capacity to cope and then we start experiencing trauma symptoms. And examples of these could be, you know, losing a job and then entering into financial difficulties for a period of time. Uh, it could be, you know, uh, losing a treasured pet, having been in a relationship that maybe didn't threaten our lives, but felt like it had traumatic elements, meaning that maybe there was some toxic personality traits or things that also impacted us in an adverse way, not profoundly into, you know, like that gauging wound, but did leave an impression. And so, those kinds of traumas we call like lowercase t or small t traumas um, because they didn't have that element of threatening our sense of safety, but they did have at least some level of an impact in our lives, especially if they're cumulative and they happen over time and create chronic stress. I absolutely love interviews like this one, which give you so much useful advice for your own life. And if it's helped you, this is an invitation to join my inner circle. It will give you exclusive access to a host of things, expert written articles, nutritious, delicious recipes, your own members hub newsletter, podcast plus, and also products and discounts decided by me for you. For one very small investment, it will help guide and support your health. If you use the code SAMCOMMUNITY, you can get 20% off your Inner Circle membership. Just head to www.sarahannmacklin.com. And it's just like that build, isn't it? It's like if you're building stress at one point, we talk about that stress bucket where it kind of, 
it just overflows and we all might have that breaking point and I'm sure so many listeners might resonate with that philosophy of thinking about actually when's enough is enough and that is maybe when people seem to turn to therapy I think as opposed to maybe thinking the preventative route of how can I kind of safeguard my mental health um and you mentioned a word, a word there that really stood out to me, which was destigmatized. And I honestly think that the word trauma can feel quite traumatic. Quite ironic saying that, but it can feel quite traumatic just approaching that word and that topic. And as I'm kind of saying that, I'm thinking, why is it so difficult for people to face this past pain and trauma? Because there's a huge inherent fear just starting that process. And as you said, if we don't, then it can become quite acute and chronic by this kind of buildup of trauma. Yeah, well, the, the facing is multi-layered. The first reason I would say is because people don't necessarily want to associate the word trauma and the experience of trauma with themselves. And this is something that can happen subconsciously, meaning that people are like, yeah, no, that's not me. And I'm just not even going to touch it. And it can happen in a more conscious way where people are like, you know, I know what trauma is and I'm just not willing to like, you know, say like that's that's a part of my lived experience. And a lot of that has to do with the stigma around trauma, with the understanding that trauma is like something happened to you. There's a lot of shame around it. There is this point of acknowledgement where you have to say, not only did trauma happen, but there is a likely chance that if there was a human that caused the trauma, that I now have to face the fact that that person is someone who hurt me. And that also tends to be something that's really hard for us to digest, especially if that person that hurt us is someone in our family or in our community who we trust and love. And, you know, to whom we had like... Um, this deference and this need, you know, to protect us. So all of that becomes very complex and it makes it so that we struggle with the acknowledgement that trauma has entered the picture. Beyond that, we actually don't have in our society enough of a, an orientation, a learning guide for people to understand how to cope with the understanding of that, that trauma lives in them. As a result, most people don't have within them the understanding that they can cope through circumstances that are traumatic. And so what they do is that they they don't want to touch any any part of that traumatic experience. They don't want to touch the emotion. They don't want to engage, mostly because they don't have a coping strategy to fall back on. And so they're like, you know, if I deny, if I avoid, if I run away mentally, if I even dissociate, even if it's subconscious, I don't have to deal with this hurt. When in reality, we have within us a lot of resilience and a lot of capacities to cope through the circumstances that have happened to us and get to the other side. You're probably listening to this show because you care about your health both physical and mental. That's why I created Live Well, Be Well to share new ways to think about your health. I want to talk to you quickly about something that we all experience and that is stress. Now we can all get stressed about a host of things, even the minor things. And stress triggers the primal response. So even simply sitting in a meeting or traffic can trigger this. This brings me on to something called the vagus nerve and it is incredibly important within the stress response and for calming our primal brains. This device I've been using is called Sensei. 
Now, it's a wearable touch therapy device. Research has proven that the vagus nerve activation calms the brain medulla responsible for stress and anxiety. Sensate is a device which uses infrasound resonance. And when paired with the sessions in the Sensate Companion app, it helps reduce stress and improve overall well-being. In 10 or 30 minute sessions, you can feel an incredible sense of peace, reducing all those small moments of feeling stress or anxiety throughout your day. This device is generally a piece of modern magic and such an exciting step in modern well-being technology. It makes the perfect gift or even better, a self-care purchase. To experience a sense of calm at home, work, or even commuting with your busy lifestyle, just go to getsensate.com and use the code SARAHANN to get 10% off your first order. So you've mentioned, and I'm just thinking the word trigger in my mind every time that you were kind of mentioning that trauma. And I think in some way, it makes me feel like it's more approachable to go, because I can easily say, oh, I'm triggered. I'm triggered by that. But that's obviously a trauma response, right? And so reframing it in that way makes it really approachable to me to think about, actually, every time I'm triggered, there's a, there's a deeper emotional response there. And that's the trauma response. But then you said something around you know, we're just not taught on how to cope with trauma. What strategies would you advise if somebody is being triggered in that moment? How can they cope through that trauma? The best way that I have figured out how to help people through traumatic experiences where a trigger is present is to always go right back to the body because we have to understand triggers in order to understand the approach. A trigger is situated in our bodies. Our, our brains and our nervous system are literally responding to a cue from our environment, whether it's external or internal, that something doesn't feel safe and we, our bodies literally armor up. That's what a trigger is. When we feel that sense of discomfort, that physical discomfort, when somebody says something, we smell someone's perfume, you know, all the, all the multiple ways in which triggers can surface, it's our body in essence tensing up and preparing us for a perceived threat. So if it is our body that is mostly implicated in the process of a trigger, it makes the most sense to go into the body and help it to relax. My biggest skill or, or, or category of skill set that I use in my therapeutic practice that I use within the book are skills that are geared towards helping us to relax our nervous system in the moments when our nervous system is feeling overactive. I could not kind of relate more to what you're saying, um, even just from a personal sense. I know as soon as I'm stressed, I have stomach problems. Chapter three is all dedicated to this. I have to say it's like one of my, was one of my favorite chapters within your book on how the mind and body is so integrated. And, and you touch upon obviously Western medicine has not integrated these two approaches. And I even remember reading a stat where it said an estimated 60 to 80% of primary care visits are a result of an underlying stress condition. And that's so much due to our minds. And when I read that, I thought, well, that's a, that's a stat, but that's a, that's a huge percentage in relation there. And then I kind of read about where it could manifest. And you said a toxic relationship could feel like IBS. Grief is directed at the lungs. And as I'm reading this, I just think, well, so much of us are going through maybe different types of chronic pain, yet we're not having this link to the stress-related conditions that this is creating. So how does trauma get processed in the body as a memory? Because you've written a lot about this in this chapter, and I found this really fascinating, the physical manifestations that can happen due to trauma. 
There's so many, so, so many ways. Um, there are a host of different ways in which, you know, trauma tends to start eating away at the body, wearing it down, and then eventually developing into chronic conditions. And so, you know, it, some of the more milder ways in which we, and, and I say milder, even though, you know, many of us don't experience these experiences as mild, but some of the milder ways in which we tend to basically inhabit stress inside of our bodies is by way of like, you know, experiencing migraines, experiencing gastrointestinal discomfort, experiencing, um, you know, a, a chronic tension on our shoulders. And so these are places where our bodies then experience discomfort but isn't necessarily the, uh, you know, ways in which our bodies are, are in essence like in, in chronic fatigue. When we experience stress and trauma in a more longstanding form, our bodies start registering that and that starts to become the norm. Our bodies start to wear down and our body's capacity to fight off disease, infection, to fight off any, any other kind of like ways in which it kind of eats at itself all of that starts breaking down. We start not being able to really kind of like fight off anything that is trying to make us unwell. And in come a lot of chronic diseases, in come metabolic diseases, right? Diabetes is very much implicated in longstanding generational chronic stress and trauma. We tend to see diabetes as like running down family lines and not realizing that what's really running down family lines is trauma responses that are going on unaddressed that are impacting, you know, the ways that we're metabolizing blood sugar. Um, the same goes for autoimmune conditions, which have been very widely correlated to uh, the stress response inside of the body. There have been studies that have actually like mapped experiences regarding um, autoimmune conditions like lupus back to the experiences that we have growing up of not having warm and embracing and nourishing and kind and loving caregivers. There have been studies that have been conducted around autoimmune conditions and childhood adversity, just a global adversity that, you know, a global categories of adversity that we can experience in childhood. And the same goes for even some cancers that have been mapped back to conditions that we experience, particularly early in childhood, but there's so many correlates and then when we enter these, you know, um, offices where there's a specialist that is a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist or a neurologist, we're entering all of these spaces, wondering about a specific ailment, a specific system. And none of these individuals are really there uh, helping us to understand how stress is implicated in the ways that disease is manifesting inside of our bodies. Honestly, Mario, I wish I met you when I was 21. I, like, there is... There's so much to be said about what you just said about these incredible doctors, but all very specialists in one field. My listeners might have heard this or heard me talk about this before, but it's something that when I was in my early 20s, my whole body went into shutdown and I had kind of my kidneys stopped working. I had sepsis. I had E. coli. I had five birth cysts. You know, I was in intensive care for, for three months. And a lot of that was a huge buildup of one, a dissociation from my body, but you know, I was going to see different specialists and they couldn't quite figure out what was going on. And it was all very separated. And then it wasn't until obviously enough was enough and my whole body just decided to kind of shut down on itself. And that's, I think, why I'm so connected to your book, because 
you really map out the system of how it does just inherit within our body but how actually even just going to therapy and thinking about just maybe us or our child or how we react it can be so much more deeper than that it can be so much more extended than that and that's what's so beautiful about bringing the term up, which we've not come to yet, but which is intergenerational trauma. Now, many people listening to this might not have heard of that term before, might not be aware of it, might be quite confused that a symptom, a trigger, a response might not even just be from their relationship with their parents. It could be even further back than that. So could you kind of just give us a bit of a, I want to say a top line. I mean, there's the whole book is on this, but kind of an introduction into how can we understand intergenerational trauma because it's quite a big one isn't it it's quite a big thing to kind of go well this could even be out of my control and now I'm realizing this isn't solely on just how I've acted and, and the responses that I'm having one thing that I like to note because what you just said is actually the general narrative that we tend to have about intergenerational trauma and that I myself have also internalized which is that something that happened so long ago and that is so layered and that was handed down to us unconsciously may not be within our control. And it's part of the motivation that I had to write this book because I was like, this feels so daunting. And I would look at my own family and I would think like, how are we ever going to get out of this? And I would look at my clients and I would think, what am I going to do with all this? You know, like it's just, it felt so (laughs) like it's a big job. But I, you know, one thing about me, I'm definitely a fighter and I, I was committed devoted wholeheartedly to to finding a way in part because as i mentioned in the book one of my family members that's my the person that i love literally the the most in this planet uh, my sister has you know struggled a lot with her own health and i was like i have to find a way so it definitely had i had a lot of internal pressure to make sure that i figured this out and it's why you know i wrote this book in part so that we can kind of salvage people from their perception that I can't do anything about this and then just like, you know, really kind of resorting to leaving things as they are because it just feels like such a daunting task. But intergenerational trauma itself is the only type of trauma that's handed down the family line. And it happens at the intersection of our biology and our psychology. The biology is very layered, very nuanced and very complex. But most notably, what we tend to know is that we have Parents, grandparents, or ancestors that had their own experiences of stress and trauma that would have been longstanding and would have eventually altered the way in which their genes turned on or off. And upon conception, they actually hand down that experience or those genetic elements, those genetic markers, as they're called, down to their children. And so just like, you know, we inherit eye color and hair color and, you know, like other kind of like phenotypes and, and and even like other personality characteristics and temperaments, we also inherit the ways in which our parents, grandparents and ancestors had actually experienced their life. And in part, this is an evolutionary response. It's actually there to help us understand when a threat might be present in our lives that was already suffered by previous generations so that we our bodies can already alert us to the fact that a threat is present and we can protect ourselves. So it's a beautiful evolutionary response, but one that actually can make us more tender and vulnerable to stress and trauma and and can, you know, when we're not really aware of the fact that our bodies are kind of mechanized this way, make life 
feel pretty heavy. Now, in comes whenever we're, you know, kind of born and we're earthside, all of our psychology, right? Like all the rest of the things that tend to happen in our lives that then can contribute to those emotional vulnerabilities and predispositions that are there from a genetic place can get triggered on, meaning that we can basically like suffer a misattunement with our caregivers. Maybe one of our caregivers passes away or gets taken away. And as a result, we don't have that connection and attunement and emotional foundation that's really present in our lives at the outset of life. We can suffer bullying in school. We can suffer oppression by way of any of our marginalized identities that we may hold. We can, you know, kind of uh, engage in a relationship that has toxicity and and violence and abuse within it and so on and so forth like so much can happen in life that when mapped back with that biological tenderness can then make it so that trauma symptoms then surface in our generation and if we already come from a line of trauma and stress that means that in generations past it was there and in the generation present it's currently there making it intergenerational on this show, you'll hear me talk a lot about the gut microbiome. So I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record, but it is incredibly important for so many elements of our overall health. As a woman in her 30s, I'm becoming increasingly aware of how important our gut health is for our overall hormonal health. Being a woman is never easy, but there is so much that we can do to empower our health and feel comfortable in our bodies. The health of our gut microbiome can impact our serotonin production and our sleep quality. And these are two key areas of our mental well-being. And estrogen plays a massive role in the metabolism of our sugar and insulin sensitivity, which keep your gut microbiome regulated as well as your weight. And as estrogen levels start to fluctuate, our swimming can be left feeling anxious, low in energy, and gaining weight with no logical explanation. But our sex hormones start to decline in our mid to late 30s, and this can cause disruption to our gut health. So investing in your gut health could be the leading preventative factor to help support you through your perimenopause and menopause symptoms. I've got something very exciting for you to try. It is the first probiotic formulated for women going through perimenopause, menopause, and beyond to help tackle the symptoms of the decline in sex hormones and to support overall health and well-being. I'm talking about the Better Gut Daily Probiotic Supplement from Better Menopause. This was developed by a nutritional therapist who was experiencing perimenopause symptoms herself. Our gut health is a central node of our well-being, and women going through this difficult stage in life sometimes need all the support and help that they can get. So if you feel that you've resonated with anything I've said, or you feel that your gut health needs that extra TLC, try the Better Gut Probiotic Supplement for three months to see if it helps support your digestion or any of these perimenopause or menopause symptoms that I've just spoken about. So head to bettermenopause.com and use our exclusive code BEWELL to get 25% off your first order. People might be listening to this going, what do I do with that information, Marielle? Where do I... How do I, I mean, obviously this was the battle that you faced, right? Where you saw clients and there's a part in your book where it was like your pivotal moment where all of your normal techniques and theses around helping someone in therapy got to a point where you were like, it's just not working. What do I do? So someone listening to this who's feeling probably overwhelmed, maybe thinking, well, I don't know how I marry these two things together to kind of feel that I get to something that you beautifully kind of call within the the end of your book, like the higher self, which is kind of that self-enlightenment, which I think about hierarchies needs. How can people 
once they understand this concept of what you just said, what's the next step? How can people then actively choose to break the cycle, as you said? Because it feels like quite a big journey. It does. And it is a journey. It is a path and it is, you know, something that we have to ongoingly commit to uh, wanting to heal because it's going to feel at times like a heavy load to carry. Now, most people believe that what we do when we recognize and acknowledge, oh, wait, you know, I've been in these toxic relationships for most of my adult life. And that's literally the types of relationships that I saw growing up. Oh, this is an intergenerational dynamic that was not broken. When they come to that point of realization, when they come to that aha moment, most people, what they want to do is start digging into the layers of their family tree, of their past, of their wounds. They want to dig. And, and I find that to be actually counterproductive. I don't actually instruct my clients or people within the book to start digging until later on in the process. What we need to do initially when we start acknowledging and recognizing that this is something that we're having to sort through is to go back into the body and start settling it. And that isn't something that most people are taught to do, even in therapeutic spaces. When people enter therapy and they, you know, they've had their breakdown, their aha moment, they're like, I need therapy. They go first session. The therapist usually says, what brings you in? Why are you here? What's hurting? And it makes a person go directly into their story, directly into their trauma narrative. And most likely they're re-experiencing the same emotions that they had back then when the event was happening. And that can actually lead to a re-traumatization. So I actually don't approach the work in that way. The way that I approach the work is by first settling the nervous system and working collectively with the person to actually put in place a system that feels like a lifestyle change around how to settle the nervous system. And once we've gotten to a place where they actually have defaulted to how they can help themselves in times of distress, then we transition into the place where we start digging into the layers and start saying, okay, what happened to you? What happened before you to the people that came before you? How were they hurt? What happened around you? And what happened around you is more of an environmental question. It's a question that also helps us understand oh, this person also suffered through a pandemic and had multiple losses in that pandemic. Oh, this person actually, you know, went through uh, an experience where uh, they were stuck in a really violent tropical storm and, you know, their the roof of their house got blown off. Oh, this person is somebody that, you know, has been uh, in an experience where, you know, there, there was civil unrest in their community. Oh, there are things that happened around them that are also a part of the trauma narrative that we must uncover. That's when we start getting into those layers because now this person knows how to bring their nervous system back into a calmer state. If I ask them at the outset, literally when people come to therapy is when they're most vulnerable. And if I'm asking you when you're the most tender, hey, so what happened to you? And now you're going into an even more vulnerable place. And then you leave my office and you're like, walking into to your car or wherever and you're like what what happened what do I do with myself like that's that's not holding that's not helpful so I, I reorganize the way that I that I work as a result in order to be more people-centered and, and more caring and nurturing to the experience of trauma 
Honestly, I think that my early stages of therapy was very much how you described it with going back into the mind as opposed to going back into the body. And I guess there's a there's a disassociation anyway because there's a trauma response there. So you're trying to go back into that. And I think, again, a lot of people I, I can imagine can feel quite blocked in that process because there's a lot of, well, people want to dissociate from that feeling because it's painful, right? So getting back into the body, and, and I do feel, and I don't know how you feel about this, this is my personal opinion, but I do feel today we are more disassociated than ever from ourselves and we're more in our minds. We're becoming increasingly overthinking because of everything and the pressures that we've got around us, their technology, you know, especially women kind of going into this generation. There's a lot of pressure and so we can easily dissociate. And so you mentioned you kept mentioning it, bringing it back into the body, bringing it back into the body, regulating the nervous system, bringing back balance into the nervous system. How does one do that? Because people might be listening to this and, and might be thinking, oh, okay, there's yoga I can do, um, or you know, there's maybe some grounding techniques. But for you, how do you approach that nervous system balance when you first start? What's some tools and techniques there? There are many, right? Like, and I know that I express some within the book and I, I tailor love them. Answer. There's loads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I think that most people, you know, they get stuck and they think, oh, there's nothing I can do here. But that's why I wanted so specifically to make sure that there were like, there's so, so many that I even express in the book because I want to offer as many options as possible. But the three that I tend to gravitate to, even in my own personal journey for me, like that I do every day, are three that are also fairly accessible to just about anybody on earth. And I specifically orient myself around those intentionally so it doesn't feel like this, this thing that's unattainable for most people. And the three are breathing, humming, and rocking. All three of these practices actually have a way in which they help the nervous system feel relaxed and calm, not only in the moment, but also in a, in a sustainable, long-standing way, meaning that they actually help us to reorganize the ways that our neurons in our, in our brain and in our nervous system are um, responding, right? Like our neurons are literally building new bridges with each other that are responding to calm and ease. And, and we're basically um, creating new neural networks that, that actually are forming around this healing process. And so the, you know, breathing, because it's been so widely popularized in society as like this thing that you do, most people I think are not engaging in breath work in the ways that actually produces the result that we're hoping for. We're supposed to do deep breathing for at least a period of five minutes. And the reason being is because our nervous system actually needs just about that amount of time to catch up to the fact that we're helping it to release. We're helping it to come back to baseline, homeostasis, balance, right? And so most people are like, they take three deep breaths, and then they move on, <laughs> not realizing that. the yoga that. practice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, you got to think about this. Like, look at your body, right? When you look at your body, you have to, like, look in the mirror and think, there are decades of wounding here. There are generations of wounding here. Three deep breaths is not going to actually help. I mean, it'll help, you know, a little bit, but... It's not, it's not going to help release 
all of these layers, we need five minutes. So I always like to ensure that I say that to people. And most people are like, five minutes of deep breathing. And so I contextualize it. I put it within their day. I say, you know, you have 1,440 minutes in a day. That's a lot of minutes. If you take five of those minutes to dedicate to the practice of being better, feeling better, it's worth it. And, you know, body memory is really a beautiful, beautiful thing that we have that allows us to to also regenerate the ways that our emotions are metabolized, meaning that our bodies remember, they remember our traumas, but they also remember the healing. And the beautiful thing about body memory, which is very different from mind memory or brain memory, is that body memory only needs about three to 400 repetitions of our practice to actually start defaulting to it. And when I say three to 400, people are like, my goodness, I don't have that time. I'm a mom, you know? And I think, you know, well, you have a year, right? A year of your life is 365 days. That's already the three to 400, you know, five minutes of deep breathing that you'll need. So why not devote that time, right? It it feels more tangible when you really contextualize it. So deep breathing is one, but it's deep breathing in that way, right? And then the others are humming. You can either hum a song that, you know, um, that you like, but usually hum it in, in a low tone. Or you can, you know, utilize the Sanskrit Om sound, which is known to, to really connect deeply and, 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 and very instantly to the ventral vagal nerve that is the nerve inside of our nervous system and our, it's our cranial nerve that actually stimulates relaxation and helps us to, to calm down after we've had our nervous system kind of overexcited by life's circumstances. So we can Om or we can... Right. Like we can we can do these things and can help uh, our nervous system to feel more at ease. The third one is rocking. And I always like to, you know, kind of like help us to visualize when we were rocked as kids. When we were rocked to sleep, what happened? We went to sleep. The reason being is because when a parent held us and rocked us and it's like bedtime and sung the lullaby or hummed the lullaby, all of that was a part of how they were stimulating our nervous system to then go into that relaxation response. And what happened? We would go to sleep. So we can actually engage in the same process now as adults to help us feel that stress release. I love that. As soon as you said rocking, I immediately think of a baby being rocked to sleep. And it's, it is, they're all very tangible free accessible things that we can do and I know that you have copious more in your book I mean the one thing that I really love about your book is that after every chapter you have different exercises or techniques to do so it's really like you do go through a journey in this book you really really do it's not just kind of a huge amount of facts and then you've kind of got to make your way through it it's you stop and you reflect and it's that reflective process but having those three things I think is really important because I don't know I find for myself I know that I get overstimulated but I very rarely stop to recognize it normally I'll then go for a run which probably stimulate me more so actually having these three tools or techniques to do I think is is so important and within this you mentioned when we were talking about you know, regulating our nervous system and and understanding about this intergenerational trauma. You said something that was really interesting, which I think many of our listeners could relate to. And maybe I hope they don't relate to it, but I've got a feeling that they will, is that you said, you know, you could look back on your life and go, well, I've been in all these toxic relationships. And I know that you do a lot of work in, in relationships as well. And I think it's such a big area just to kind of touch upon when it comes to trauma. Because when we 
what we've been talking about really is, is self was trauma, but then we forget how this can kind of spill out into the rest of our lives. So obviously how it affects you know, relationships with our friends, relationships with our partner, relationships at work. And so all of these things are, are really important. And so when you're in a relationship, how can you know if, and I'm trying to think how I can word this in a, in a good way, but how can one realize if they're in an unhealthy relationship or toxic relationship? Because sometimes we've gone through so many before we realize, but how can we kind of make these realizations when we're in it? And maybe that's due to due to trauma. Very often when we're in cycles of abuse, we don't realize it because of that normalization process, because we saw it growing up, because it felt like the normal way in which, you know, people tend to be in relationship with one another. So it, the the biggest armor that I believe that we have against engaging or getting back into cycles with anyone is knowledge. It's the understanding of what cycles of abuse are, what they look like, how they start, how they end. It's literally like our understanding of all of that. Because when we start contextualizing, adding language to the, to the experience itself, we start to make it more visible instead of invisible, which is your know, subconscious and just like the, the status quo. So very often, you know, um, we don't realize that there are ways in which cycles of abuse start making their way into our lives. We usually have some sort of a honeymoon stage where like kind of everything feels like glorious and beautiful. And like, you know, it's, it's really hard to spot if somebody is intentionally just wanting to connect with us versus wanting to loop us into a cycle, right? But, but there are signs. There's usually signs where people start building tension and things kind of come out of nowhere. And there is a manipulative quality to, you know, kind of the tension building. And then eventually there's some sort of a blow up. When the blow up happens, the specific marker of what tends to happen within that blow up that tends to be one of the biggest red flags and the things to look out for is when that person is not able to assume accountability and when they start gaslighting us, meaning they start distorting our sense of reality and our perception of how things went. When that starts to happen, that already is a big clue to the fact that, you know what, something may be happening here that fits into this category of toxicity. Eventually, things start to patch up and they don't feel quite right. They just feel right enough for now until tension starts building again. And so like when we start, especially people tend to need to at least cycle through one of those cycles in order to see that they're getting back on the ride and, and understand that eventually things are going to come back down again, right? And then everything's going to erupt and then patch up, erupt, patch up. When these are the, the, the ways in which relationships tend to kind of flow, it's important for us to, to understand that that's the general mechanism or the ways that the relationship already is. And we can start making a determination of whether or not we want to exit or if, or if we want to start finding ways to resolve within the relationship. Most often than not, people are not able to resolve these kinds of experiences in the relationships that they're in because what we're talking about is woundings that the other person is bringing into the relationship, only that the wounding that they're bringing is a wound that is perpetuating harm. Some of us 
are the types of people that we come from having been wounded and we just go back into cycles where we're continuously victimized. Some of us are wounded and we go into cycles where we continuously victimize others. And then those people tend to find each other, right? And and then create cycles that become very, very like entangled. And that strong entanglement and that feeding off of each other and continuously kind of like going back to each other and forming an even stronger bond when they go back to each other, that's what's called trauma bonding. It's that that experience of like just cycling through, becoming stronger, cycling through, becoming stronger to the point where you sometimes feel like, I can't live without this person. I know it's bad, but I can't live without them. I can't leave. And that's trauma bonding. And so like it makes it so that we can't exit. But when we're aware and alerted to how these cycles tend to make their way into our lives, it can be one of the biggest armors against becoming, you know, a cycle keeper or engaging in the cycles, whether we're the person that is perpetrating the cycle or the person that's being victimized by it. It's that acknowledgement and awareness, isn't it? That's the kind of, because I think when you're in it, as I'm listening to everything that you're saying, it feels, not impossible is the word, because I don't want anyone to feel it's impossible, but it feels, you know, when people say love is blind, it feels very blinded to kind of get out of it unless it comes to a point when it has to stop. Something that like, Something that I've been looking at a lot, and I and I don't know if you agree with this, but is self-compassion and understanding the importance around one's self-compassion. Now I'm thinking, like listening to this toxic relationship kind of trauma bonding that you just expressed, there seems to be no self-compassion within that for oneself. Because if there was, and people had kind of an abundance of self-compassion, then it wouldn't kind of carry on in that cycle. So how important do you think self-compassion is for oneself before going into a relationship or even being in a relationship. If they're looking at themselves and thinking, actually, I have quite limited self-compassion. Do you think that's quite a big determiner of looking at unhealthy relationships? This is a beautiful, I just want to say, it's a beautiful reflection of what can happen. I'll be honest, I have not necessarily heard anyone ask me that question or express it in the way that you did. And I, I do believe wholeheartedly that it is an, a component of what's missing. Self-compassion is really critical. And when a person feels um, that they don't have worth in a relationship, which tends to happen very often when these cycles of abuse, you know, make their way into our lives. When a person doesn't realize that they need to pass some of that compassion back, because they've been basically pre-programmed that way. They've been programmed even since childhood to, to actually be of service to other people, to the adults in their lives, to siblings if they're an elder sibling. You know, like there are different ways in which we are socialized. Abandon yourself, care for others, women especially. When that is the case, it is very, very uh, hard for us to actually start restructuring our minds to understand, oh, I must have compassion for myself. So what happens when we enter a relationship that has toxic elements in it and we have a person that's kind of like sucking, you know, the the life force out of us, um, that whenever they start telling us, well, you made me feel this way, you, you made me sad, it's your fault, we start having compassion for them and forget that we are in something that feels really heavy, really daunting and really traumatic and we forget to hold compassion for ourselves. Compassion, self-compassion especially, 
can be such a powerful, powerful thing to have. Because think about what happens in the mind when we have self-compassion. We start thinking, oh my goodness, that was such a horrible experience that I just had. That was so hard for me. That's self-compassion, like being able to like look back to ourselves and, and notice like, my goodness, that was tough. When we can say that, that means that we are realizing that someone caused us harm. Meaning that we can look at the other person and think, you're doing something that's hurting me. That's acknowledgement. That's knowledge. Self-compassion also breeds the knowledge that we need to realize what is happening around us so that we can start armoring up. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with you with that concept of self-compassion. It's a beautiful, beautiful way of like being able to integrate what can be missing for us that we need to then start integrating into our lives so that we can also basically become more conscious of the things that can make us unwell, particularly in relationships. Yeah, I think it's honestly one of the most underspoken concepts because I think it can be confused with feeling selfish. And so basically we just don't talk about it. And, our, and, and it's sad that that's our needs that become last. But I think there is, as you said, there's so much power that can come from giving oneself self-compassion because then that radiates to other people if it's done in a, in a non-toxic environment. And having that kind of mirror aspect with someone else where someone can see that that person's got self-compassion for themselves is a really beautiful thing. So I guess if we're on this, do you have any tools on how one can develop more self-compassion for oneself? Because I think even if they might feel that they relate to this unhealthy relationship that we just spoke about, maybe starting on that self-compassion could be one beautiful route to connecting back to what they really need, whether it's that relationship or not. But building that strong compassion feels quite a good way for one to maybe start. So do you have any tools on that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the tools map back to mind and body awareness. It, it's about literally stopping, right, in the middle of your living room when you just had um, a conversation with someone, placing your palm on your heart and just thinking like, how am I doing right now? What's happening? How am I taking in this moment? How do I feel? Where do I feel it in my body? Am I okay? You see how in that moment, like you're literally taking care of yourself. And then the warmth of the palm of your hand is felt on your heart. It's a beautiful moment where we actually get to just take care of ourselves. It's actually kind of a reparenting moment too. So we actually get to, in essence, like be that person for ourselves that can be nurturing, that can be kind, that can be loving, that can be curious, like what's happening? And when we can do all of that for ourselves in that moment, it actually starts cultivating by default self-compassion because we start acknowledging in every given moment, we'll start going to into the office and we just had a meeting and we're walking to the next meeting. And in between, we're already by default starting to think, how did I take in that meeting? What happened when that person cut me off? What happened, you know, when, when somebody stole my idea? How did I feel? How is my heart holding that meeting right now? And it can make you so much more conscious and aware of your own experience in that moment and the beauty of it all is that it can actually even buy you time. And what I mean by that is that 
you can go into that next meeting and actually be very reactionary. Somebody else cuts you off and you're like, you know what, I've had enough. I'm not, I'm, I'm just not I'm, not, I'm not allowing this. And then all of a sudden that person is being displaced onto. They're like, whoa, where did that even come from? Right? But in reality is that you were holding so much of what happened in the previous meeting, not realizing how much it had actually weighed you down emotionally. Had you taken those few seconds to just take a moment and like look within yourself and just offer yourself a bit of that love back? it would have actually helped to buffer the experience in the next meeting of you taking in whatever it is that that person was throwing your way with, you know, a steady head and a steady heart because you're not, you know, you're, you've already would have taken care of yourself around what happened before. So, so there's, you know, I think that that's probably the most basic, but really in my personal and professional opinion, I think it's probably one of the most profound, sustainable and, and important ways that we can take care of ourselves and cultivate that self-compassion. It's through that awareness. Sarah, I'm so sorry to cut in, but since Live Well, Be Well is all about health and well-being, I need to tell you what great mental shape I'm in today. Since we started producing this podcast, it seems that you've been on quite a health journey. And seeing you blossom honestly fills me with joy. My sleep cycle's on point. My gut microbiome is in better shape than ever. I'm even doing HIIT workouts, can you believe it? But the reason I rudely interrupted this interview is to tell you about the adaptogenic coffee that you've suggested to me earlier this week, which contains lion's mane mushroom and rhodiola. Two things I personally don't know much about. Perhaps you can enlighten me. Science shows that lion's mane mushroom is known to improve memory, mental clarity, concentration, and overall, just your brain health. And rhodiola is a powerful adaptogen known for its effects on stress levels and brain functioning. Okay, that's all sounding very exciting indeed. And I can confirm these shroomy coffees are absolutely delicious. And they come in these single sachets, which is incredibly convenient. But I don't really understand what makes them so special. So what exactly is adaptogenic coffee? The medicinal mushrooms and coffee are probably one of the most perfect pairings. You get all the benefits of regular coffee, which we do love, whilst minimising any side effects. So why does this happen? I know you're going to ask. Caffeine is a nootropic. It increases our alertness and our attention. But many of us will have experienced the increased levels of the stress hormone cortisol, which results in, sadly, the jitters, and anxiety. This has 100% worked wonders for me this week. So where can people get them? Okay, so if you want to try these at home, we have a special discount code from the amazing brand London Nootropics. And they have three different blends to choose from. So listen up, Sam. Here is your mix. You can have Zen. It's probably the most balancing. It's great if you're caffeine sensitive. Then you've got Mojo. This is perfect for that natural boost. If you're feeling a bit fatigued, it makes a really good pre-workout because of the cordyceps and also, get this, the Siberian ginseng. And my favourite, to experience the effects of lion's mane and rhodiola, get yourself some of the Flow Blend. We've got a bit of a treat for the listeners, right? A discount code? Yes, we do, Sam. And I know that you love it because you love a discount. So all you need to do is use the code LIVEWELLBEWELL to get... 20% off at londonutropics.com. A box of each blend is only £15, so you're kind of getting a very good deal here. And subscription starts at £12 a month, delivered straight to your door. I honestly think, like, as you were talking me through that, 
I mean, I was kind of having kind of a feeling in myself when you were saying those questions back to me. I felt felt quite emotional, actually. And I think what it made me resonate with was we we ask people that every day, like, how are you? How are you feeling? So we have that common language, but not with ourselves. We have that with somebody else. So we're then, whether they invite us into the truth of maybe they're not coping or it's just kind of a very generic as the British do, yeah, fine, end of conversation. But, you know, if they do open up, again, we kind of take on their emotion and and then we kind of worry and we're curious. But we so rarely do that with ourselves. I think if we do notice something's wrong, we kind of go, God, why do I feel like that? Or or what's that feeling? But we, we kind of do it in a rushed way to dispel it. And it's really interesting that as you were taking, especially me, I don't know if the listeners agree with this, but going through that process and you said it buys you time, the one big word that stood out, which I feel like is every therapist's favorite word, is boundaries. It kind of came up and I was like, wow, it's interesting how the self-compassion is kind of creating this boundary. Because then, as you said, the next time you go into the meeting, you're like, actually, I'm not taking this. I don't need this. And that's your boundary that comes up where you go, actually, that's that's kind of crossed the line for me. I, I'm going to kind of walk away. And it's just interesting how these narratives become quite entwined together that actually it starts from the awareness of self and self-compassion that we develop these other beautiful kind of mechanisms such as boundaries which we haven't touched upon today but I know that you talk about a lot as well. I like the concept of buying us time right because we we have to think about um, the nervous system when we're even talking about boundaries which I think has been missing out of the boundaries conversation which is a, a bit of a disservice to boundaries because when we, what happens most often than not is that we erect boundaries, people poke at our boundaries, and then we, we bring down the walls because we feel guilt, we feel uh, discomfort, we like all of these things are happening, and we're not able to sustain the boundaries, right? Like, and so sometimes people are like, well, they weren't holding up my boundary, and so I wasn't able to, to actually, you know, keep it up. When in reality, yes, that's true, and we felt guilty because we put that boundary up. We felt like a bad person, which is shame. Um, and so we, we're not talking about how is your nervous system and how is your body internalizing your own boundary setting. So I like the concept of like uh, the idea of like thinking about all of this in terms of like buying time and also settling ourselves. Uh, and I'll take us through, you know, what I mean by that. So the buying time is that the more that we work on settling our nervous system and create a default way of like feeling more calm makes it so that we actually gain about two to three seconds of reaction time. Whereas like our nervous system is like, uh oh, threat. We must fight, attack, say something to protect ourselves, or we must run, flee, avoid, right? Like these are ways that we, in essence, like find a way to get through moments. However, when we work with our nervous system continuously, we actually get an opportunity to basically like have two to three seconds where we can say, hmm, that doesn't feel too good to me. I I don't feel great in my body. That's two to three seconds already. Those two to three seconds will make you more conscious, aware of how you're taking in the moment and allow you to then respond from that place, from a place of self-compassion, from a place of inner knowing, from a place of more settledness, like all of that is being bought back into your being that wasn't there before. It's a beautiful gift that you're offering yourself 
Because then whatever it is that you say to that colleague in that meeting is going to be reflective of your level of calm and your level of self-awareness. And so that's why I like the idea of buying time, because when you think about it, you would have reacted, right? And, and then what would have happened? Everyone would have been looking at you like, whoa, totally out of character. What happened to her? And then what happens? Shame. Then you're hiding from your colleagues and people are coming to your desk and they're asking, are you okay? And then it just spirals and it's a mess, right? Yeah, but we've all been there. We've all been there, right? And so like when I'm talking about buying time, it also is eliciting pride because you're like, wow, I really took care of myself. I actually responded from a place that, uh, you know, aligns with my value system. I looked like the way that I wanted to present in that meeting, sturdy, you know, and and also, um, but not looking like I was out of control, but sturdy, right? Like I asserted my boundary, but I I looked like I had, you know, um, some some element of, we'll call it control, right? Like some element of control over what I was saying rather than it was a reactionary response that was beyond my control. And so all of this, these things tend to surface when we start working on regulating the very thing that tends to be, you know, disrupted during the process of trauma and overcoming stress, which is our nervous system, which is why I always go back to it. You know, it's like, it's such an important aspect of our lived experience that is so, so, so under acknowledged, um, undernourished. And and I think that this is a season in, in the zeitgeist of the times when we can really kind of change that. I couldn't agree with you more that it is probably one of the most underspoken, disacknowledged lack of support surrounding this area because it is riddled in so much shame, which you've just touched upon, and so much stigma that it's just easier to hide it. But actually, I, I really hope that like through this conversation today, and I really hope from people buying the book, that they they don't fear having this conversation they don't fear the step toward self-compassion for themselves that they do deserve to be free of this cycle of pain or a cycle of dysregulation of the nervous system which i think sadly has become quite normalized you know if you're not stressed then you're maybe not succeeding i think there's an imbalance on how we're kind of looking at stress and nervous system and and, and you know a, a, a way of how we're living in society and at the essence of it all, I guess, it's trauma. And so starting to acknowledge that feels like such an amazing leap just towards a self-respect towards yourself, really, that you don't need to deal with this and you can be free of it. And I think that's what I have found just so beautiful from our conversation that actually there feels to be this beautiful offering that we can all get to. But I think something that is really true to, to ring home that, you've said in the book and you've said throughout this conversation is it's a journey and I don't want people to kind of go away from this conversation do a few days of work and think oh it doesn't work I can't do it I'm going to give up because that kind of goes into that shame of well it feels too far away there's too much friction I think it's so important to to build it up as you said and you did say and I and I remember going through this book it's not until kind of at least halfway into the book that you really start diving back into the trauma. It's a lot about getting into the body. And so I'd say like, especially now, 
in the period that we're in with so much happening in in the world it's about being like really gentle and, and, and connecting just to our body before making those next steps and I think I just really wanted to say that because I, I think this is such powerful work and I don't want people to kind of start it and feel as some people sometimes do with therapy when they don't connect straight away that they think it's not for them so I think knowing that it's a journey and it's a process and it's a bit of slog and you might have physical symptoms come out because there's release and all of that stuff it's part of the process but it's blimmin amazing work so thank you so much for sharing everything today um on the show and i really encourage everyone to go and buy this book and the last question i leave with everyone which i cannot wait for you to answer marielle is what does live well be well mean to you you know live well be well to me means being able to shed the layers of what holds us back um but weighs us down and step into our abundance era. I think that that's what it means. It'll look different for all of us, but for many of us, it's about shedding, becoming lighter, and walking earth, feeling lighter. And and then the added bonus, the beautiful little generational gift that that gives us is that the people that are sprinkled around us get to also experience that lightness including the next generation. And it just becomes this, this beautiful outpouring of our abundance onto you know the people that we love and our communities. So that's really what it means to me. It's, it's really, in essence, like what I've described as the cycle-breaking journey. And it's a courageous journey that we take because it is arduous, it's hard. But at the end of it, it is immensely rewarding and and when we look back we feel such great pride at the ways that we've been able to break cycles and so that that's really what it means to me i think that could have been the most poetic answer we've ever been given (laughs) (laughs) oh it's beautiful (laughs) really beautiful so poetic it's like you knew i was going to answer ask it which you didn't so thank you for being so eloquent in the answer and for the whole of this episode to make sure our listeners can hear more from you and look you up on instagram and and everything i'm sure they're going to want to do to find out more about everything that you do around trauma please can you share your details with our listeners yes absolutely so um i can be found at drmariellebouquet.com i'm usually on linkedin under my name and my book is also um really everywhere books are sold and it is uh, it's a what i call a generational gift from my family to yours it's a uh, generational gift from my therapy office uh into your hearts and so i i hope that it it lands well for everybody (laughs) 